mic on. Hey there, folks. This is Joseph, and this time on this talk, you're going to hear about Revolution's Lake of Fire and its interpretations. So here we go. Mic off. Mic on. Here we go. Mic off. What does the future hold? Where can we find certainty in a world of uncertainty? The Book of Revelation provides hopeful answers for today, tomorrow, and forever. Join Mark Finley, author and world-renowned speaker, on a journey into the future with Revelation's Ancient Discoveries. Welcome back to another episode in Revelation's Ancient Discoveries. One of the topics that baffles more people than any other is the topic of hell. How can a loving God burn people in hell for millions and millions and trillions of years? In fact, Robert Ingersoll, famed, renowned atheist, said that one of the reasons he was an atheist is because he could never conceive of a God who would burn people in hell. And if that was the God the Bible presented, then he certainly could never believe in that God or never believe in the Bible. The book of Revelation really clears up this subject of hell. It may seem a little confusing, but as we open the scripture today and as we study the book of Revelation, you will see clearly God's plan for the future. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your goodness. Thank you for your grace. Thank you that you are a much better God than you're often portrayed to be. Thank you for the picture of the loving God that the book of Revelation reveals. Help us to understand it clearly in this presentation in Christ's name, amen. My topic is Revelation's Lake of Fire. Have you ever visited hell? You say, what are you talking about? Thousands of people visit hell every single year. Now, they don't stay very long because it's so hot and it's such a desolate place. What am I talking about? There is a place called hell. It's on the Cayman Islands. Now, the Cayman Islands are incredibly beautiful. Sandy beaches, magnificent turquoise water, sunny skies. But on the west end of the Caymans, there is a place called hell. It's a limestone foundation that is interacted with the sea and the algae. And as you go to that location, it really looks like what some people have imagined hell. How did it get its name? Well, we're not 100% sure, but many people as they visited that place said, my, this is what hell must look like. There's actually a billboard that welcomes you to hell, and hell has a post office there, and there is a little shop where you can buy curios, and there is somebody dressed, can you believe it, like Satan that is there? And you can send a postcard from hell to your loved ones. You know, we kind of smile about this location and joke about it a little bit, but the subject of hell is really a serious subject. It troubles a lot of people. Is hell a hot spot in the center of the earth? What is hell? Are there people burning in hell now? Or 
What is this lake of fire that the Bible talks about? Are there people there in that lake of fire screaming and crying out because they're being so tormented and be in such pain? What does the Bible actually teach about the subject of hell? Many people misunderstand this subject, and so they picture God as a wrathful tyrant. Picture God as a vindictive judge. Let's review what we've been studying in the book of Revelation. Revelation 20, verse 9 says this, speaking about the end of the thousand years, speaking about the end of the millennial period, talking about Satan, and the, he marshals the legions of the lost, and they go up to the city, and the scripture says they went up on the breath of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. Now, as they do this, the Bible says, fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. Well, what are the sequence of events that have led up until this particular point? You remember that the Bible teaches that Christ will come again. Every eye will see him. Every ear will hear it. The coming of Jesus is the most glorious event in human history. Once Christ comes, that will lead to a sequence of events. The earth will be destroyed by the brightness of Christ's coming. This earth will be desolate. As this sequence of events takes place at the end of the thousand years, and during the thousand years, the only one that is here is the devil and his angels, but at the end of the thousand years, the holy city will descend. The wicked dead will be resurrected. Satan and his followers will attack the city, and the wicked will be devoured by the flames. Now, this picture is a very important one to understand, understand hell, where at the end of a thousand years, the holy city descends out of heaven. Satan and the legions of the lost and all the wicked of the ages rush up and try to take that city. As they do, the Bible is very clear. It says, fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. So here's the first thing to notice. The fires of hell are not some hot spot burning in the center of the earth. The fires of hell come down from God out of heaven. The second thing to notice is that they are devoured. They're consumed. They're burned up. They don't burn forever and ever and ever. But there is a third thing to notice about these fires as well, and that is that the fires of hell totally destroy in something called not the first death, but the second death. Let's look at it in Scripture. Revelation 20, verse 6, blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. How many resurrections are there? There are two. Remember John 5? The Bible says, verse 28 and 29, blessed and holy is he that is part in the first resurrection. It says, marvel not at this, for the hour is coming, which all that are in the graves will hear his voice. Those that have done good to the resurrection of life, those that have done evil to the resurrection of damnation. So two resurrections, a resurrection of life, a resurrection of damnation. First resurrection, when Christ comes, is the resurrection of life. Over such, the second death has no power. So notice that expression, the second death. What is the second death? All of us die a physical death if Christ does not come as the result of the sinful nature of this world and the sinful nature of humanity. 
So we all die the first death. If we die that first death, but we're believers, we're committed to Christ, we then will not experience the second death. So if you are born twice, you die once. We are born physically, but then through Christ we are born again. We only die once. If you are born once, you die twice. If we are only born physically in this life, but not born again in Jesus, we die the physical death, but then we, of course, die the second death, and the second death is an eternal death. Now, the Bible does not say that we die and then if we are unsaved, we live in hell forever and ever, millions and trillions and trillions of years. We'll speak about forever later. But it talks about this second death, and death is the absence of life. The first death is the death that we each die as the natural result of living in a sinful world. The second death is an eternal death as the result of personal rebellion against God. So death is the absence of life. When we experience the second death, or the wicked experience the second death, they are consumed and gone forever. The Bible is very clear. The devil and the evil angels and the unsaved rush up to that city. Fire comes down from God out of heaven and devours them. Now mark this point well. Where are the devil and the evil angels and the wicked destroyed? On this earth. That's what the Bible says. The holy city comes down, they rush up to take it, they are consumed on this earth. So if what some people believed really were true, if that really were true, then hell would be burning on the earth. Do you believe that God knows everything, that he's omniscient? Is he? Then in his mind, he would always have those being burned present. Do you believe God is omnipresent? That means God is everywhere. If you believe that, then you would believe that if this wicked are burning on the earth, that God would in some way be present there. Do you think sometime we are going to be flying over a part of the new earth after God has created it and we kind of smell smoke and we hear screams and we say to God, what's that God, what's that? Oh, that's a place I didn't want to tell you anything about. That's hell, and it's kind of burning here. You know, that is inconceivable. It's inconceivable to the human mind that a loving God would torment people for millions and millions and millions of years in hell. It's incompatible with God's love and certainly incompatible with God's justice. It certainly is incompatible to the rational mind that there would be a part of earth renewed because then the earth certainly couldn't be made new. It would be old with hell on it and sin still existing. God's plan is to fully devour, fully consume, do away with sin forever because the Bible says, Revelation 21 verse 1, now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Out of the ashes of this old world, God creates a new world. Out of the ashes of this old world, God makes this world over again. The Bible says God will wipe away, Revelation 21 verse 4, every tear from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. Every tear from our eyes are going to be wiped away. All of the crying is going to be gone. So no crying out in agony from hell. No tears of sorrow about ones we think are burning there. 
Rather, God explains to us why he could never bring them into heaven. He explains to us very clearly why they're lost because of their own choices. He explains that he's done everything he could to save them. They are devoured, consumed, and gone by the fiery presence of God. And then God wipes away any painful memories from our mind. It says there'll be no more pain for the former things. Now notice this, the former things are what? Passed away. So everything that has to do with sorrow and sin and suffering, everything that has to do with evil and wickedness is gone. It's passed away forever and ever and ever. God will do away with sin. God will do away with suffering. God will do away with pain. God will do away with physical affliction forever. Would you want to torment your worst enemy for trillions of years? Certainly not. And God wouldn't want to torment his worst enemy for trillions of years either. God is a God of justice, a God of love, and a God of mercy. Now, many evangelical Christians are coming to this conclusion. John Stott was one of the foremost English evangelicals, preached in All Souls Church in London for many, many years. And John Stott, highly respected theologian, evangelical theologian, came to the conclusion from his study of the Bible, from his reason, that a God of love would not torment sinners in hell for millions of years. And Stott wrote about the total annihilation of the wicked. They were gone, consumed, burned up. Edward Fudge was a lawyer, and uh, he studied Scripture. He also was a theologian, went to Florida Bible College and Abilene Christian. And as this uh, Bible scholar, as this Bible scholar with the mind of an attorney, began to research the subject of hell, he wrote the book, The Fire That Consumes, a biblical and historical study of the doctrine of final punishment. It probably is one of the most complete treaties on the destruction of the wicked ever published. It has extensive, exhaustive research, looking at all the texts in the Bible, looking at history, looking at the background of the doctrine, and Fudge came up with the clear conclusion that hell is not some hot spot in the center of the earth, but that hell has to do with the fires of God that completely consume and annihilate the wicked. The idea of an ever-burning hell for trillions of years is really a pagan doctrine, and it's blasphemy to a God of love. It is unclear that in the Bible, they're so totally unclear that God would ever, ever burn people for trillions of years. But that leads us to questions about hell. For example, it, it leads us to this particular question. When does hell occur? Is it burning in the center of the earth now? How long does hell last? How can a loving God destroy those that he loves? Well, Let's look at what Scripture says. Malachi 4, verse 1. Behold, the day is, the day is what, everybody? The day is what? The day is coming 
what, what's coming? Burning like an oven. So in other words, the day is not here. Hell's not some hot spot in the center of the earth. The day is coming, burning like an oven. And all the proud, yes, and all that do wickedly will be stubble. The scripture says, and the day which is coming, future, shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts. So the Bible teaches that they'll be burned up, they'll be consumed. It says the day is coming, not that the day is here. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 7 adds, but the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, now catch this, are reserved for fire. If they are reserved for fire, they are not burning now. Hell is not burning now. Until when? The day of final judgment. Until the, what does it say? The perdition of the ungodly. So put these two texts together. Malachi 4 verse 1, the day is coming that they'll be burned up. Future. 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 7, that the, per, those in perdition, the wicked, the lost, will be reserved until the day of judgment, the day of judgment, the day of final destruction of the wicked. The Bible is very clear when it speaks about how long hell lasts. When somebody says, doesn't the Bible use the expression everlasting fire, eternal fire, uh, forever and ever? I'm really glad you asked that. As I lecture all over the world, I get those questions. And if you read the Bible superficially, you may come to the conclusion that hell is a hot spot in the center of the earth, people are burned forever. But when you look at the context of each passage, the depth of each passage, when you shed yourself from tradition and look at the Bible as it reads, it becomes very, very clear. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 29 says, our God is a consuming fire. So wherever sin is found, God is a consuming fire. Let's suppose that I have a clay pot, and I take that clay pot and I put it out in the sun, and that clay pot is soft, what's going to happen? It's going to harden in the sun, and it's going to be preserved as a hardened clay pot. What if I have a candle, a wax candle, and I put that in the sun, what's going to happen? It's going to melt. So you have the same sun but a different reaction with the pot and the candle. You have the same God of love, but a different reaction with the saved and the lost. When Christ comes, the saved are caught up to meet Him in the sky. They do not have combustible material in their body. But as far as the wicked, the unsaved, when they're resurrected at the end of the thousand years, the fiery presence of God consumes them because they have sin in their body and sin is combustible. That's why Malachi chapter 4 verse 3 goes on and says, you shall trample the wicked for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day that I do this, says the Lord of hosts. My mind can understand how God has tried to save people down through the ages. My mind can understand how a loving God has reached out to men and women but that if they've rejected his love, turned their back on his mercy and spurned his grace, that he cannot save them, that there's no way he can bring them to heaven because they would start the rebellion all over again. But he does what a loving God must do. In justice, he destroys sin. He's given them the chance to live once. They're consumed to ashes and they are gone, gone forever. The wicked will be turned to ashes. 
not burn continually for millions and trillions of years, but rather consumed and gone forever. How can a loving God destroy those he loves? You know, the book of Isaiah calls this God's strange act. The book of Isaiah talks about the pain, the suffering in the heart of God when the wicked are destroyed. And I can almost imagine God turning away with tears in his eyes because the same God that must destroy the wicked has said this. John 3.16, Jesus points out, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not what? You know it. Should not what? Should not perish, but have everlasting life. God does not want you, my friend, to perish. God wants you to live forever. He wants to give you life with a quality that goes on and on and on. A loving God doesn't bring the unsaved to heaven where there's unselfish love because they are filled with selfish hate. The hallmark of heaven is unselfishness. The hallmark of heaven is love. And if God would bring selfish people into heaven, why, they'd probably start digging up the streets of gold again, wouldn't they? They would probably climb over the walls of heaven and try to rob the new Jerusalem. They would be creating anger and bitterness in heaven again. So God cannot bring to heaven those who've rejected his love because unselfish love cannot live with selfish hate. As the result of that, God has given them a chance to live once. He's reached out in love to them. He's convicted them by his Holy Spirit. He's transformed their lives by tapping on their shoulders and trying to lead them to him. He's done everything he can to bring transformation to their lives. He's touched them. He's moved on their hearts, but they've rebelled. They've hardened their hearts. And as the result of that, the only thing that a loving God can do without in jeopardizing the entire universe and infecting it with the cancer of sin is to consume them so they're gone forever. They've lived once, and now they're gone, gone, gone forever. But God wants you to live, my friend. He wants you to have everlasting life. The Bible is clear. Psalm 37, verse 20, it says, But the wicked shall, what's that word? Perish. And the enemies of the Lord, like the splendor of the meadows, shall what? Vanish into smoke. They shall vanish away. So the Bible points out that they'll be destroyed, that they'll perish, that they'll vanish away, that they'll be consumed, that they indeed will be like ashes. What does the Bible mean when it uses the expression everlasting destruction? What does it mean when it uses eternal fire? Somebody says, I see these texts about consumed, vanishing, perishing, destroyed, but I, I'm a little confused about everlasting destruction, eternal fire. Let me give you some examples how the word eternal is used in the Bible. It's used of Christ's act on the cross. Hebrews 9, verse 12, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place, once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. 
when did Christ obtain redemption for us on the cross? Is eternal redemption Christ staying on the cross forever and ever? Not at all. The effects of Calvary echo and re-echo down the ages. They are eternal. It's not that his act on the cross is eternal, that he stays there with the nails through his hands forever. It is rather that the effect of the cross is eternal. In Hebrews 6 verse 2, the Bible says of the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. What's eternal judgment? Does God judge us throughout all eternity? Is that what eternal judgment is? Not at all. The results of redemption and the results of judgment will be everlasting. So when the Bible talks about an eternal or everlasting fire, it's not that the fire lasts forever. When he talks about everlasting destruction, it's not that the act of destruction lasts forever. When he talks about everlasting punishment, it's not that the punishment lasts forever, it's that its effects last forever. They never need to be repeated. A good example of this is Job there in verse 7. Job, of course, rather Jude and verse 7. Jude only has, of course, one chapter. And it says, as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Did you notice that expression? How were Sodom and Gomorrah burned? What were they burned with? They were burned with fire that came down from God out of heaven, just as the wicked will be burned with fire that comes down from God out of heaven. But they were burned, according to the Bible, with an eternal fire. Are Sodom and Gomorrah, those two twin cities, are they still burning? You know, once I was lecturing on Sodom and Gomorrah, and I said, does anybody know who Sodom and Gomorrah are? Somebody raised their hand and said, oh yeah, they're two twin sisters. I said, well, not quite. They were two twin cities, and they were wicked cities living there in Old Testament times, and they were consumed. In the days of Scripture, Lot, Abraham, they were consumed with an eternal fire. Are they still burning? No, they're not. In fact, their remains or ruins are along or underneath the Dead Sea. So what is an eternal fire? It's one that's effects are forever. An eternal fire is one whose effects or results are eternal, not that is ever, ever continually burning. In Matthew chapter 25, verse 45 and verse 46, Jesus says, then he will answer them saying, assuredly I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to the least one of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Somebody said, there it is, Pastor Mark, everlasting punishment. That's what's going to happen to them. But notice what it does not say. It does not say everlasting punishing. And everlasting punishment is not everlasting punishing. Everlasting punishing would be a continual state of punishment moment by moment, hour by hour, day by day, down through the ages. 
but everlasting punishment is one punishment that lasts forever. They're burned up, they're consumed. The act never need be done again. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 18 and 19, the Bible makes it very plain what happens to the enemies of the cross of Christ, what happens to people that turn their back on Jesus. It says that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ whose end, that's whose final result, is destruction. Now, it doesn't say that their end, their final result, is this state of being burned for millions and trillions of years. Their end is destruction. This word destruction, in fact, the Greek word for destruction, and of course the New Testament was written in Greek, is one of the strongest words in the entire Bible. It means to be utterly consumed. It means to be totally destroyed. So they are destroyed. They're gone forever. My mind can understand how a loving God would have to destroy sin in those that cling to sin, those that hold on to sin must be destroyed with that sin. But my mind could never understand how that loving God would torment people forever and ever and ever. That would be incompatible with both God's love and God's justice. The Bible says in Matthew 7, verse 13, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to what? Destruction. And again, the very strong word, destruction, one that is totally destroyed, one that is totally annihilated. What is the fate of the wicked? You can read it again and again and again in the Bible. The wicked will die. Death is the absence of life, Romans 6, verse 23. The wicked will perish, Luke 13, verse 3, not live on forever. The wicked will be burnt up, consumed, gone, Malachi 4 and verse 1. The wicked will be utterly consumed, Psalm 37, verse 20, not in a state of pain, suffering, agony for eternity. The wicked will be turned to ashes, Malachi 4 and verse 3. The wicked will be as though they had not been, Obadiah 16. The Bible is very plain. The Bible is very clear on the state of the wicked. A loving God cries and weeps. I think I hear God crying. If you listen, you may hear him crying too. Satan rebels against God in heaven, and God must cast Satan and the evil angels out of heaven. I think I hear God crying. He creates Adam and Eve on planet earth. And Eve partakes of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and Adam partakes of it, and they must leave the garden, and sin and sickness and suffering come into the human race. I, I, I think I hear God crying. He raises up Israel. They turn away and worship around the golden calf, and I think I hear God crying. God sends His Son, and many reject Him, and God weeps as Jesus hangs on the cross. And God sends His Holy Spirit down through the ages to men and women. He sends angels to bring light and truth, and there's a battle between good and evil and Christ and Satan. In the last days of earth's history, God invites men and women to come to Him and worship Him, but many turn away. And in the final analysis, 
the wicked are ultimately completely destroyed. And I think there must be a tear in God's eye. But he can do nothing else but eradicate the world of sin. Satan will be totally, absolutely destroyed. Isaiah 47 verse 14, those that have clung to evil and sided with Satan will be destroyed because the Bible says in Matthew 10 verse 28, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. What is the soul? It's the life, the life of the individual. But rather fear him who's able to destroy both soul and body in hell. So hell is so hot, it burns up, consumes both soul and body. One person said to me one time, Pastor, you don't believe in hell, do you? I said, well, I actually believe in a hell that's hotter than the hell you believe in. They said, what do you mean? I said, well, the hell you believe in just torments people. The hell that the Bible teaches and that I believe in is so hot it consumes them, it burns them up. Is as Jesus said, it, it destroys, destroys totally, absolutely, completely soul and body in hell. They are consumed, they're annihilated, they're burned up. Now what about the biblical expression unquenchable fire? If a fire is unquenchable, doesn't that mean it goes on forever? Mark chapter 9 verse 43 and 44, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter into life maimed. Now don't misunderstand this. Jesus is not saying cut off your arm if you've stolen something. He is rather saying, if you compare your arm to eternity, eternity is much better. So cut out of your life the thing that you have been doing that would cause you to lose eternity. It's a symbolic expression. When you come to the next phrase, it's a symbolic expression. Just like you're not going to cut off your hand, it says, rather than having two hands to go to hell into the fire that shall not be quenched, it goes on, and it says, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. In other words, what's it talking about? It says the worm doesn't die. It's a contrast picture. The person does die. The person is consumed. The person is burned up. But it's a contrast picture that gives you, at the end of the thousand years, the fire comes down. The people are destroyed totally. And it says there, the fire that is not quenched. What is an unquenchable fire? It is one that no human hand can put out. Have you ever seen a headline in the newspaper that says, the fire trucks came, the fire was blazing, it was an unquenchable fire, too hot for the fire trucks to put out. It burned up everything it had to burn up. Jeremiah 17 verse 27, then I will kindle a fire in its gates, that's in the gates of Jerusalem, and it shall devour the palaces of Jerusalem, and it shall not be quenched. When Jerusalem was destroyed, what kind of fire burned it up? What does the Bible say? Do you see it there in the text? What kind of fire? That's it. It was an unquenchable fire. Well, is Jerusalem still burning right now? from that unquenchable fire where it was burned back in the days of, of Scripture? Certainly not. An unquenchable fire is one that no human hands can put out. No fire engines can put it out. No water buckets can put it out. It's an unquenchable fire. It burns itself out when it consumes everything there is to be burned. 
So the unquenchable fire at the end is one that consumes totally, and out of the ashes of this new world, God makes, out of the ashes of this old world, God makes a new world. Jerusalem, the city of Christ, is not burning now. The unquenchable fire that was burning in, when it was destroyed in Old Testament periods, that unquenchable fire has long been gone and a new city has been built. Jesus, out of the ashes of the old world, will develop a complete restoration. This world will be restored into its Edenic splendor. Nothing to bring pain, nothing to bring sorrow, nothing to bring disappointment, nothing to bring tears, nothing to bring heartache. This world will be restored in its Edenic splendor. Now somebody says, but what about the biblical expression forever and ever? Pastor Mark, that is one that really, really troubles me. That's one that really, really bothers me. I don't see how, I can see these other texts, but I can't understand this one about forever and ever. When you're studying the Bible, there's a couple things to keep really in mind. One is that the Scripture can't be broken. So the Bible's not going to contradict itself. The Bible's not going to say the wicked perish, the wicked are consumed, the wicked are turned to ashes, fire comes down from God out of heaven and devours them. The Bible's not going to give you all these texts, more than a hundred texts on the annihilation of the wicked, and then throw in one text and say, oh, I'm going to throw out these hundred texts and accept this one text. Not at all. So we need to look at this expression forever and ever and tries to discover what it means. Revelation chapter 14 verse 10 says, he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone forever and ever. The smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever and they have no rest day or night. When does this event take place? When is this really uh, the description of his smoke rises up forever and ever? At the end of the thousand years, the wicked are destroyed. The smoke rises up until the end of that age. In fact, in the Greek language, the language in the New Testament, the expression forever and ever is aeon totus aeonim, which simply means until the end of the age. So at the end of the earth age, God recreates a new heaven and a new earth, Revelation 21. And in that new heaven and new earth, all of the suffering and heartache are gone. So when you read Revelation 20, where it says the smoke rise up forever and ever, and Revelation 19, it's introducing the idea that this world, the age of this world will be over, and sin and wickedness will be over and God will create a new world. It's the expression forever doesn't mean endless existence necessarily. Forever in the Bible can be translated until the end of the age. It often refers to a limited time. Let me give you a couple examples of that. Exodus 21 verse 6, then his master shall bring him to the judges. It's talking about a slave. He shall also bring him to the door or to the doorpost. And his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, that's a sharp instrument, and he shall serve him forever. So when the slave would serve the master forever, how long would that be? 
Would it be through eternity? No, as long as he lived until the end of his earth age. You find that again in the book of Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 22. It talks about Samuel being taken by his mother to the temple. I'll take him that he may appear before the Lord and remain there for how long? Forever. Samuel in the temple forever? Is he still there now? But notice what the next phrase says, Therefore I have also lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he shall be lent to the Lord. So one phrase talks about forever. The next phrase talks about as long as he lives. So this expression, forever, when it talks about the wicked, the wicked are in the flames until the end of the age. They're in the flames until they're totally consumed. They're in the frames in the context of the statement in Exodus 21 about the slave, that he would serve his master forever, in the context of 1 Samuel, where Samuel would uh, be up before the Lord, lent there as, by his mother forever, as long as he lives. So the wicked are consumed with sin as long as they're able to live in those flames. They're totally consumed. They're burned up to ashes to the end of that age. Now, somebody often asks, what about the parable of the rich man and Lazarus? And I want to spend some time on this particular parable because it's one of the most confusing parables that many people will see in the Bible. First, you either have to say this story of the rich man and Lazarus is a literal story or it is a parable. If it's a parable, it's designed to teach us lessons. In Luke chapter 15, you have three parables. You have first the parable of the lost boy, then you, or the lost sheep, then you have the parable of the lost coin, then you have the parable of the lost boy. So you have three parables in Luke 15. Then in Luke 16, you begin a series of parables that are called the certain man parables. And you have two parables in Luke chapter 16. The parable of the rich man and Lazarus is the fifth parable in a row. So that helps us to understand that indeed it's a parable. Now let's relive that parable. And Jesus begins to tell a story. And he tells it something like this, and I will modernize it in my own words. He says, once upon a time, there was a rich man. And there was a very, very poor beggar. And uh, the beggar's name was Lazarus. And he would just get crumbs from the rich man's table. And they both died. The rich man went to, and all the Jews were there. They were Pharisees were there. They're elbowing themselves. They're smiling. We know where the rich man went. He went up to heaven. And we know where that poor man meant, went. He went down to torment. We know that. We know that because riches are a sign of God's favor. Look how great we are. And Jesus then reverses it. And he says, once upon a time, there was a rich man and a poor beggar. And the rich man ended up in torment. And the poor beggar ended up in eternity. Wow! Jesus reverses it. Now, the story was a very popular one in the days of Jesus. Because you see, in the days of Jesus, 
the Jews had this story, this understanding. They had this illustration that when a person died, he went down through this long tunnel. And at the end of the tunnel, if he was righteous, he went to Abraham's bosom. If he wasn't, he went to a place of torment. And all the rich, all the aristocratic Jews, they would go through that tunnel and they would go to the Abraham's bosom. And all the poor, they would go to the place of torment. This was a popular story. So what did Jesus do? He took a popular story to illustrate some truths. Now let's suppose this story is literal, as some people want to think it is. If it is, and you go to Abraham's bosom, Abraham must have a very, very large bosom. But there's something else about it. If this story is true, people in heaven can see and have conversation with people in hell because, a because Lazarus is talking down there to that rich man. And so, I mean, do you really believe that, that people in hell and people in heaven can have conversations? Uh, do you actually believe that people in heaven can see people in hell? I mean, that would be really, if you take this as literal, if you think there's problems in taking it as a parable, there's much greater problems in taking it as, li as literal because that means that souls, so-called souls, and we've already pointed out in this series that death is but asleep till the resurrection. But if you take this as literal, it actually means that souls down there in so-called hell, contrary to the Bible, have, uh, they have eyes, they have fingers, uh, that you can see them, that you can talk to them, because the description is, oh, come and put some water on my tongue because I'm burning in this hot place. So that, that really is, becomes nonsensical at all. Souls would have to have fingers and eyes and tongues. And if they do, why do you have a resurrection at the end of the body? It doesn't make sense. So what are we talking about here? We're not talking about conversations between heaven and hell. We're not talking about people in heaven seeing people in hell. That would destroy heaven. I mean, if you could look down there and see people you interacted with in life, if you could look down there and see people that were your relatives, your family, your friends, a husband not saved, a wife not saved, I mean, heaven would be terribly tormented. You would be tormented in heaven because you would see those people crying out in agony and screaming. Jesus' way and his explanation of this parable is much, much clearer. See, Jesus used a popular story to share three eternal truths. Eternal truth number one, riches are not a sign of divine favor, and poverty is not a sign of divine condemnation. When you look at this story, Jesus is saying, that there are many who are poor, who are faithful to God, many who are poor that are committed to God. And if you get riches by ill gain, riches by selfishness and greed, that is not a blessing of God at all. The second lesson in this story, you remember Lazarus and this rich man are having this discussion. And as they are, the rich man says, send somebody send somebody down here to, uh, down to earth to, to tell my brother so he won't come to this place. And what does the Scripture say? There's a great gulf fixed. What's the second great lesson? Second great lesson is there's no second chance. Second great lesson is 
make your decision for eternity when you're in this life. First lesson, riches are not a sign of God's favor necessarily. They could be, but if they've got with ill gain, they're not. Poverty is not a sign of God's displeasure. Many people are in circumstances. Second lesson is this. There's a great gulf fixed. Make your decision now for all eternity. Third lesson. Was there ever a man named Lazarus? Was there ever a real man named Lazarus? Did Jesus raise a real na man named Lazarus from the dead? Did he? And if he did, what about that man? Did everybody accept him? They didn't. What did they do? They tried to do what? Kill him. So what is the third lesson? The third lesson is this. Miracles are not a sign of God's divine favor necessarily. If you reject the clear teachings of the Word of God, if you reject the clear teachings of Scripture, if you do that, miracles themselves are not a sign that God is at work. Can God work miracles? Yes. Does God work miracles? Yes. But merely because a miracle is worked does not mean in any way, shape, or form that that's of God. Because can the devil work miracles? Can the devil make people sick and then heal them? That's what Revelation says. So three great lessons. First, riches are not necessarily a sign of God's favor. Poverty is not a sign of His displeasure. Secondly, there's a great gulf fixed between this life and eternity. Make your decision for Christ now. Thirdly, don't place your faith in miracles because the devil can counterfeit them. The parable of the rich man and Lazarus is not a literal description of hell. God is using, Jesus is using a story, a story to illustrate divine truths in a parabolic sequence, and every detail of the parables is not necessarily to be applied exactly. People talking between heaven and hell, preposterous. People see, in heaven seeing people in hell, preposterous. The Bible says in Matthew 13, verse 50, they would be cast into the furnace of fire. They'd be wailing and gnashing of teeth. In other words, they would be there suffering for a time until they're totally consumed and burnt up. You remember when Jesus hung on Calvary's cross, he bore all of the pain, all of the suffering, he bore, in a sense, hell for us. Because what is hell? What, what's going on when they're weeping and gnashing of teeth? What is that all about? It is about this sense that the wicked sense that they are going to be separated from God forever. They sense that they could have lived, but they're gone forever. They sensed that they could have been one with Christ and live with Him through all eternity, but they are lost, lost, lost forever. And they have that conscious awareness. You see, Christ on the cross said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In other words, sin is so bad. Sin is so horrible. Sin is so terrible that it even tore the Son of God's heart from the Father. All Jesus could see was that sin and its condemnation, but He bore hell for us. Hebrews chapter 2 says He tasted death for every man. Galatians chapter 3 verse 13 says Christ 
hung on the tree. Cursed is everyone that hangs upon the tree. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21 says, He who knew no sin became sin for us. He bore the pain, the suffering of hell, so you would not have to go through hell. Ezekiel 18 verse 23 says, Do I have any pleasure at all in the death of the wicked? Says the Lord. He says, and not that he should turn from his ways and live. Jesus says to you, I have no pleasure in consuming the wicked. Turn, turn, turn from your ways and live. I have no pleasure, Jesus says, in the death of the wicked. Jesus says, I'm reaching out to you. Jesus says, I want to save you. I love you more than you ever can recognize. I bore all the pain, the suffering, the condemnation of hell for you. Jesus says, come, come. Come just as you are. Come right now. You need not be lost. You need not be consumed in the last fires. You need not perish. You need not be destroyed. Jesus says, come, make your decision right now as Tim sings. Just as you are, hear the Spirit call. Come just as you are. Come and see, come receive, come and live forever. Just as you are, hear the Spirit call. Come just as you are, come and see, come receive, come and live forever. and strength for today. Taste the living water and never thirst again. Oh, won't you come and see, come receive, Come and live forever, you'll find life everlasting, and you'll find strength for today. Just taste this living water, and you'll never thirst again. Jesus says, come just as you are. Don't you hear the Spirit call? Come just as you are. Come and see Christ my King. 
just as you are. There is no other way to come. The journey begins where you are, in your home, watching this broadcast with friends. The journey begins right where you are. And Christ is reaching out to you at this moment. In John 6, verse 37, he says, him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. We can come to him with all of our sinfulness. We can come with all of our weakness. We can come with all of our folly. We can come with all of our humanity. And simply lay all that at Jesus' feet and say, Jesus, take me. Save me, for I cannot save myself. Deliver me from my sinful habits, because I cannot deliver myself. Redeem me from this world, because I cannot redeem myself. Come. Come just as you are. Receive his grace. He will pardon you. You need not be lost. You can be saved saved forever. You see, in the final analysis, there are only one of two choices. We live forever with Christ in this amazing new world where every talent is developed, where our minds are expanded. Oh, we enter into that grave to be resurrected in the second resurrection, to be consumed and gone forever. Jesus wants you to live he wants you to live a meaningful life now. And he wants you to live with him for all eternity. So come, just as you are, as we pray. Father in heaven, we bow our heads just this moment, wherever we are. We sense your spirit tugging at our hearts. We hear your voice speaking to our inmost being. And we come, we come, we come just as we are to receive the gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Thank you for joining us for Revelations, Ancient Discoveries. Well, folks, this completes the talk on Revelation, Lake of Fire. Coming up next will be Revelation, A New Life. Our text is called Revelation, New Life. Mic off.